Hey gang, welcome to another episode of Value Added, the real estate podcast. On today's episode, we're chatting with Anthony Gooday. Anthony is a structural engineer with RNS Tavares and Associates based in San Diego. RNS Tavares and Associates provide design services, structural design, consulting, and project management services to their clients. So without further ado, let's get on with the show. Welcome to Value Added, the real estate podcast where we speak with the brightest minds in the world of real estate who provide, create, and realize value in an ever-changing market. And now your host, Nick Walters. Generally, I was just going to totally wing it, but uh, you know, let me know how you want to approach it. Yeah, no, we're... Uh... We're live right now. <laughs> yeah, let's go. Let's go live now. I mean, this is this is how we start. Right. We just uh, we we had a phone call what last week, and we were yes. just talking about the, the the conversational nature of of this show. Uh, yeah, and I, I we don't really have a uh, a structure format, but um, okay, I love yeah, it. Yeah, no, it's uh, it, it was good to chat with you last week, and yep. uh, looking forward to our little session today or this morning. You're uh, you're in San Diego time, so. That's right. Um, you're just now waking up and and enjoying your coffee at your in your in your kitchen there, and yeah, we're uh, we're ready to rock. But yeah, uh, great to have you on. Uh, tell the listeners a little bit about uh, your your career up to this point. Sure. So um, I have a progression uh, coming in from. I have an engineering uh, background academically, um, and uh, complemented that with a bit of business. And over the last. Uh, oof, already been 10 plus years or so worked my way from uh being on the uh, buy side making investment decisions for real estate anchored funds uh, particularly in hospitality and healthcare at the time uh and then progressively made my way through uh, uh down the value chain all the way through asset management project management uh project management and program delivery and finally, the last sort of piece um, has been a, a mix of operations and research uh, specific to delivering uh, the built product uh, as a construction manufacturing solution. So just a really sophisticated way of saying, uh, how can developers that have a lot of pipeline build uh, ultra effectively, I suppose? And that, that ties into a, lip, uh, a lot more of designing systems that apply to whatever asset class they're in. If they're in multifamily or hospitals or healthcare or whatever it might be, uh, they tend to design structural systems that they can combine um, and put into production. So I, I deal with developers, that, developers, institutional entities, whatever they might be, um, looking to churn out uh, hundreds of units on a repetitive basis they might have nine or 10 projects spread across the country. So we're licensed in 43 states and um, that's how we serve that client base. And my, my career progressed at that point because I always kept in mind that original um, uh, service or what was really lacking at, at the uh, investment level, that visibility through uh, delivery of a project. So now I find myself at an engineering firm designing those systems for fabrication. Gotcha. So you you guys are licensed in forty three states. Why why not the other seven? Uh, the, I think it's just a, a constraint of um, paperwork. So the last the push has been you know obviously we don't do it if we don't get a certain amount of business in that state. 
I'd say that the, the remaining seven states, we have uh, reciprocity agreements with other engineers. Uh, so it hasn't been a, a terribly pressing issue. Uh, but basically, every year we'll add five or six states that uh, we're busy in. Um, and it probably, we could probably count all but one uh, right now as far as activity. So we'll get there. Uh, gotcha. Yeah, just not doing it just to do it, right? Uh, so we make sure we have some some deal flow there. But a lot of the busiest, I suppose, are those that have extenuating circumstances. You know, you know have Seattle or, or um, certain certain parts of the country that have that different uh, seismic requirement, like California, those are some of our more challenging builds. Uh, so those took priority when we, when we started our path, but the firm's uh, 20 years old now or so, uh, principals have 30 plus years. So um, they sort of map that out as it progressed. So, Not to get into all that, but <laughs> that's engineering talk for you. Yeah. <laughs> so let's talk about manufactured, uh, uh, building or uh, modular development, whatever whatever you want to call it. Uh, sure. Why is it why is it becoming more of a uh, a hot topic topic these days? Um, but also, why is it why is there so much resistance against this this uh, this type of construction? Sure. So I, I could address the re- the resistance question first because that's been something that's been on my mind. A bit more, um, and I think that that exists um, as a as a question of scalability or application. So it's a little skewed when we when we try to understand where uh, there exists friction to adoption. But I think it's really a question of appropriateness for the business model. Naturally, uh, a firm that builds two or three houses a year, uh, it's very uh, it's minimally it's not as likely that they have that need for production housing uh on the on the flip side if you're doing uh even just one hundred plus thing trying to see cost and schedule efficiencies even if it's just multifamily wood frame but there's been um i actually addressed this in a post today was that there's an underlying demand that's been consistently growing uh, and that's specifically, uh, to a degree, more complex assets, uh, more uh, ch- challenging builds, uh, because that's where you see the most gain. So when people talk about uh, adoption, sometimes they're talking about the general public, and the general public might be loosely connected to the home building, individual home building business. So that'll always be the last group to adopt. Um, and that's where we see a little bit of friction. Um, but the, I almost, wish there was like uh, a way to refer to it uh, refer to the sector without a noun because we're, we're describing just a, a, a process right so if developers have to compete at a price point for land acquisition that's one way they can increase their profit right uh, the second is to uh, add value you know if you're up zoning or you do a land division or you somehow remediate a site that's that has other uh, that makes it unbuildable otherwise those are those are three very real estate development centric ways of adding value on the financial side you negotiate a better deal with your lender you borrow less uh, cheaper or you uh, distribute your LP more efficiently then that's another way you compete as a real estate developer but outside of those two things uh, the rest of it is project delivery so how can you do more with less management teams, 
um, or uh, more efficient management teams, therefore less uh, cooks in the kitchen, I think is the, the term. Uh, and how can you contract and de-risk yourself from the liability of the process of building? So if you can, if you can take your 20 contractors down to 10, Great. If you can um, limit your liability of cost overruns, great. If your schedule is more adherent to your original scope, your lender is much happier with you, you ultimately make more money. So that third one, I just feel that everyone's in the business of real estate development, but there comes a point when you realize that if you don't, you haven't optimized your project delivery, well, you can serve less of a market, you make less money, you, you have all these other inefficiencies. And that comes back to the process of how you deliver that product. And construction manufacturing, if we use that term, if we want the most generic possible, um, is not just how we make windows and doors. We make windows, doors, wall assemblies, roof assemblies, uh, and these are all just better ways to build, which ultimately means that developers make more money. And that's why institutional guys that have those resources, I suppose, invest a lot more there, but I think there's an opportunity for us as well. I say us. (laughs) But yes, the... uh, the smaller developer. Gotcha. So the types of projects that you're working on right now, tell us a little bit about without diving into super detail, uh, but tell us a little bit about some of the projects that you are working where you're, you're implementing this, uh, this type of, of construction. Sure. So for us, um, we're a bit of a nimble firm. So there's 20 of us uh, doing the building or designing structural systems to get approved at the state level. That's what we do for developers. Then what happens is they revisit those uh, to deploy it in their, whatever their development might be. Uh, so we have um, foreign and domestic firms that we serve that have these, have these designs in place. Uh, and it varies from, uh, I mean, we even have some single family. It might not be, um, it, they're a little bit of high design type uh, projects because there's a, there's a niche in the market that wants to see um, superior builds for maybe second homes for um, certain individuals that have that spend. Uh, but a lot of, uh, I'd say the other 80% of the firm, we work on a variety of assets uh, from multifamily to cold storage, data centers, emergency facilities, subsea mining. Um, all of those applications have effectively just a different type of uh, design to serve the market. But those same developers many times have a diversified portfolio. So um, you'll see that, you know, we'll do like a man camp and a multifamily build for the same group. Uh, we have five multifamily projects uh, in LA currently. Um, on the East Coast, we're looking at uh, temporary housing. So it's uh, it's been um, uh, a very new market since COVID because uh, we've seen a big uptick on uh, particularly uh, public entity uh, spending with regard to crisis management. So we're in all these verticals. Um, and what happens is uh, many times we stumble upon design efficiencies that you find, say, in trying to churn out uh, multifamily housing in, in eight weeks, you know, uh, and get it approved at the state level that we otherwise maybe wouldn't have done if it wasn't for uh, the sort of time pressure that we were under recently. So we, we're exploring a lot of tech and uh, just as a design firm in general, it's just a whole different expectation when you're in this space. Um, so yeah, we're in, we're in, I'd say five or six different asset classes right now. So your developer clients that you're working with, uh, do you have developers that are diversifying their, uh, 
their construction techniques. Uh, you might have developers, depending on the, the size and scope of their developments, are still building, uh, you know, they, they probably have some of their portfolio that's stick built, some that's, uh, you know, uh, concrete and glass. Uh, and, and, then, and then you have the, the, uh, the prefab component. Uh, do you have clients that do diversify just based on the, 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 uh, each individual project that are still using uh, various construction techni techniques? So I have to say that uh, we've seen that decline over, over the last several years, and they just um, as as the system gets perfected and they have their preferred fabrication facility, or maybe they own a fabrication facility, or there's all sorts of different structures. But for the most part, um, as after that first, second, and third project, when the system has been pre-designed to a degree, and they've had a successful uh, relationship with a fabricator you'll see them go back there because there it becomes a negotiation of uh, volume and scalability. So ultimately they phase out that, that on-site work. So on-site work always, I don't want to give the wrong impression. There's, there's something called a level of completion and every firm has a different strategy. You know, some just want a very low level of completion, which means uh, the site work of installation of say plumbing fixtures still has to happen. Uh, and others that have the furniture mounted to the floor. And some are just more common in some industries versus others, like places that make sense, right? So if you're building a hotel in New York, you're going to get everything anywhere other than New York um, because you want those cost efficiencies. And then you just try to make the unions as happy as they can be if they're involved. And um, if you're, uh, say, doing man camps, you know, it might make sense to have a crew on the ground to just do fixture installation because your relative access to labor might be different. So every sub-market, every developer, project by project, region by region, has their own independent strategy. Uh, but it tend, there's always a fundamental, as soon as they figure out at least the structural component and realize that you can revisit the same system and not have to design every time from scratch, that developer goes away from any sort of purely uh, craft building is the new term I've been using for it, um, because you, you start from scratch again. Um, and so, you know, you're looking at uh, duplicating your design costs every time. You're looking at starting those negotiations uh, based on material costs every time from the beginning. Whereas if you just call that same fabricator you just worked with, uh, they might have a better indicator since they buy, you know, a hundred times the lumber you do, um, what it's going to look like in six months. Your number is a, a bit more accurate because you're going to someone who does only that. And you're a real estate developer leveraging effectively that supply chain, procurement, all the things that happen behind the scenes. It's almost like developers that, that function purely on site um, are, are business entities, you know, maybe with the financial expertise, maybe acquisitions is their strength, fundraising is their strength. But that fabrication facility is the opposite of that. And that's why you see a lot of developers opening fabrication facilities. Um, and otherwise going downstream and upstream from their core service. Uh, and that's where a, a lot of our clients have fabrication facilities and are developers and have fabrication arms. So it's not necessarily mutually exclusive. Hopefully I answered your question somewhere in there. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, with, with the rising cost of, of construction, uh, traditional construction techniques, uh, the, costs are just are rising and rising it feels like daily yeah. um the 
going going the the fabricated route is going to uh, ultimately decrease your your construction costs. Uh, talk to us a little bit about going uh, going a a uh, um, a modular prefabricated route versus more traditional construction. Uh, talk to us a little bit about the what developers could expect to see um, with regards to the cost savings. Okay, so yeah, I think that um, so it comes down not to uh, there's no way to avoid the cost of lumber when lumber goes up, right? You can only um, leverage partnerships that perhaps uh, do more purchasing or uh, have taking advantage of, say, the tariff uh, or, or the new legislation around uh, imports from Canada or whatever the new uh, procurement science is. Um, you can only leverage that, right? Uh, so it comes more of a question of cost control rather than reduction, right? Because you're not going to build an inferior product. Uh, there's no reason to. The, the manufacturing process just lends itself to partnering with someone in the supply chain. So ultimately, it's it, and it's, of course, it's not just uh, it's supply volatility has been a wild, wild ride. I mean, lumber, yeah, it's been wild. Um, and and yet, you you try to control those through uh, those manufacturing relationships. Um, that's really what it comes down to. It's it's not an alternative build. It's just a process that hones in a bit more on controlling that volatility. And that's where it it's much more on the radar, say, than uh, a part-time builder or, or a small, a small um, multifamily development client because they don't, maybe, maybe that lumber price only takes a $200,000 bite of their bottom line. Oh, that, that seems drastic, you know, even for a small project, maybe that's 10% of your forecasted profit. But if you're looking at institutional, you're looking at tens of millions per project and to see that money flow out just doesn't make sense so they they tend to think a little bit ahead it's like when you think of uh you know a big builder like toll brothers and and they have a whole portfolio related to just hedging against lumber costs you know um i'd say at a very entry level having a a a facility having less contractors in the field and having a facility give you that hindsight and focus on controlling those costs, even for a developer that might only be doing 100 plus units uh, a year, uh, that, that there's an immediate value there that definitely is worth, uh, is worth revisiting. Uh, so yes, uh, labor shortage is a, is a major issue. Obviously, the challenges we had with COVID onsite, um, all of those lend themselves to offsite, which is why we see a lot of uh, interest during this period, like our industry, our firm even specifically has been growing a lot because we had a, a whole rehash of, of firms coming back saying, okay, we, we have to give this a, another run because now it's not an option anymore. It's not an efficiency, it's a, a necessity. So that's been something that's been recent. With regards to uh, construction timeline, talk to us a little bit about what a developer could expect to uh, to see with regards to decreasing his timeline um, if, if he were to, to implement a uh, prefabricated modular uh, construction technique versus more traditional techniques? Sure, I can speak to uh, volumetric modular and uh, flat packing uh, panelized. So uh, the, the recent studies, uh, particularly one that's been cited a lot has been by McKinsey, and I could probably forward you that at some point, uh, talk about 50% faster. Uh, which seems wild, um, and and it is. But there's there's a sense of um, 
I always take those things with a grain of salt. So we, we know that that's the case and at an institutional level, rather frequent uh, because say we have clients that have been building all of their projects uh, using industrialized construction, produ- experienced executives in that space. They've been doing it for a decade or 15 years. Obviously that, that group has a, a, a much bigger leg up than, than say someone that's their first time uh, engaging a fabrication facility. Um, but ultimately, I think that I just from experience, I suppose, and you know, we get into uh, in a total stuff. But between 30, 20 to thirty percent faster is if you if you execute the design properly and you recruit your team properly, which is another uh, big sticking point. Um, that that ultimately that's almost a given. The fifty percent faster is you've optimized your systems, you know what you're doing, and that's why you never see those clients go back because. Uh, when you're talking about a hundred million dollar project, uh, 50% schedule cut uh, is almost like you did another project in between there. So that, in terms of uh, margin and profitability, it's unmatched. Uh, and I think that that data cut took time to come out to the market uh, because perhaps the people that have adopted faster, or the groups that have adopted faster, are not necessarily in a rush to share that. So it's it's been seen historically as a competitive advantage, and now it's becoming at least in the um, Less so in the the say multifamily or single family production housing, but it's becoming almost a bidding standard when it comes to corporate jobs. Like Facebook doesn't want you to build their dorms on site. Like they, you know, you won't get the bid. So there there's been uh, there's a certain level of uh, expectation from informed owners, and I think that's that's ultimately why I say there's no this is not another cycle. It's somewhere around 2018, the investment in offsite, which was definitely underreported, or we should use the term industrialized construction, because uh, there's such thing as on-site fabrication. Um, so uh, in 2018, there was a 10x increase in investment in the US market in offsite. And I know that doesn't include components. It doesn't include uh, certain types of systems, because there's no way to really track that. Uh, and that's those who have publicly disclosed it. So that's when it felt I broke. It broke the model. You'll see a chart that I shared at one point uh, from Daniel Hall on a on a report that they had uh, completed, and you just see 2018 spike into the stratosphere. And it's not market driven. Nothing happened in 2018. It just was. Uh, and I think ultimately it's also that some groups have entered the supply chain. So big developers have decided to invest in small factories. You have a, a tech component that reached maturity. You have, there's just from every angle in the industry, uh, investors uh, that are in the business of AEC are not comfortable investing in off, an on-site builder. There's no control, there's no site, there's no investment thesis. So the emergence of construction manufacturing into the building business is just fundamentally different. And so when that finally clicked, I think that the uh, You'll still see a cycle, but the whole the whole financial picture is just elevated to maybe a, a, a 10, 10 notches upward. Um, so that's the best way I could describe it. I'm not an economist, unfortunately. Interesting. So, uh, what what are the opportunities uh, for offsite construction uh, in your eyes? What are the biggest opportunities that you see uh, coming down the pike here? Uh, uh, in the short term, sure, and and I always think of that of that de- uh, that developer builder is trying to scale to say ten thousand units, right? Uh, maybe we're at a thousand, we're at two. Um, you consider that an established operator that's uh, 
ready to grow. So there's a few limitations that you can immediately eliminate when you implement industrialized construction, prefabrication, on-site, off-site, whatever you want to call it. A relationship that consolidates your, your supply chain, helps you deliver projects in, in a faster, more economical way in a wider footprint. So think of a developer that's, this is like, I'm, I'm going to use my own symptoms. When I was in New Jersey, I, I, let's say I, had a, I started with just focusing on my county, or my city, my county. Um, when I implemented my little process and I was still building on-site, kind of mixing the bag, I could reach three counties. When I started contracting facilities in Pennsylvania, North Carolina, now, uh, now I was looking at the tri-state or a regional firm. The same way um, that a more sophisticated developer could um, thread into the construction manufacturing space is exploring how to do more, reach more markets. And I think that's the primary and ultimately deliver more units. But let's think of it in terms of, well, that market's three states away. Normally, I don't, I don't have a, a chance at all. Uh, but now I can reach that market. And my supplier and my costs are lower because I went two states over to get my supply. Now you're thinking like, a, like an investor, uh, whereas before you're just a builder that knows how to negotiate an acquisition. So I want to bring that to, uh, to the development community and specifically that lower middle uh, space because that's who benefits the most and that's the future of the industry, I think. Not necessarily a home builder, one-off home builder or a speculative builder. Cool. That's, uh, that's all great info. Uh, we're going to conclude this episode with the hard-hitting questions. These are the questions that we ask every one of our guests. I always like to start off with the question, what is your why, Anthony? Oh, <laughs> so for me, it's, um, you know, it's funny because it, it brings me to the multifamily and single-family homes. So I've, I've had housing challenges growing up uh, modestly, which makes me just a little uncomfortable to talk about. But um, yeah, I've, I've experienced some challenges with housing and my why ultimately revolves around uh, that housing equity that doesn't exist at all. Uh, when affordable, attainable units are $400,000, it's quite scary. Um, and addressing that crisis on both a national and global level is just everything I'm about. Um, yeah. That's great. <laughs> That's uh, me. There's, uh, there's definitely, uh, there's definitely a, a shortage of, of affordable housing. Uh, not, not necessarily when I say affordable, uh, yeah. just attainable housing, exactly. right? Um, exactly. Yeah. What it is, closes doors. That's all. Yeah, no, that's true. It's there. Exactly. Um, what is uh, a most recent book or a, another piece of media that you've consumed that has uh, provided significant value to your, uh, to your life or your career? Oh, boy. Well, now I'm on a publications binge, uh, particularly because I'm looking at very um, deep tech additions to the manufacturing space. So I might, I might put people to sleep with that. Um, so I, I tend to cruise a lot of academic white papers. But if I could say uh, an influential book recently... Uh, I mean, I suppose uh, fun reading with Dalio's principles was was uh, a big one for me because I was focused on. Uh, there's also advantages to company culture, manufacturing, keeping everyone in in your space, so to say. So there's more enterprise development there that doesn't exist. There's a reason that GCs struggle with that, uh, or general contracting development firms. So I'm looking for those levers to pull as someone in operations. That's in the offsite industry because I ultimately look at the core organizational elements. So yes, Ray Dalio's principles, he's a financial firm, but there's a lot in there culturally uh, that our industry could really benefit from uh, and attract people 
clients and uh, future employees. So I'd have to put him on there. I agree. That's a great book. Um, and I think, in my opinion, it's it's more centered around the culture that he's built um, over that 30 or 40 years that they've been in business, more so than uh, their their overall investment thesis, right? Right, um, right. Yeah. That's everything. Um, culture is everything. And you realize that the more you mature into the space, uh, there's only so much you can do with, with a company where alignment might be off or, or there might be any other friction. Uh, that's somewhere where, honestly, it's probably 80% <laughs> uh, of, of what you do. Um, and that's very, very important. So I, that, that book spoke to me very much. So. Uh, Anthony, how can our listeners learn a little bit more about you uh, and your uh, your firm? Sure, uh, I'm always on there, firing off. Of, I'm not a professional LinkedIn guy, but uh, I engage a bit, uh, quite a bit, uh, and lately have been putting more and more out there. I'm kind of all over the place because my message, uh, or I just put whatever's interesting to me. Uh, but they can feel free to to look into us, and and we're of course uh, designing systems for everyone in the space uh, to the point where. Um, uh, we we get effectively uh, some projects will have, be retained by all firms involved. So uh, from a business standpoint, I, we don't necessarily. Um, I could just provide sort of objective views on things, and I leverage that fact that I don't really. Uh, I'm not soliciting business from anyone. That anytime they want to ask me a question, uh, I'm happy to field it uh, publicly, privately. Uh, I use almost I use LinkedIn like uh, like AOL back in the day. I've messaged everybody individually and. And expand it out. Um, but if anyone wants to do anything, I'm I'm available. They can just find me. I'm Anthony Gooday. <laughs> so, awesome, uh, Anthony. Listen, um, thank you so much for the time. We greatly appreciate it. And uh, again, thanks for adding your value today. Absolutely. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please make sure to leave a rating and a review, which will help us introduce the podcast to other listeners. Also, don't forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel, which will give you access to other episodes you may have missed. Lastly, if you'd like to learn more about investing alongside us, then head on over to valueaddedpodcast.com. Have a great day, and we'll talk to you next week.